Good morning, everyone. This morning, we are continuing our Lenten sermon series, Disordered Love. We are devoting ourselves this Lent to the first half of one chapter in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, chapter 3 in Genesis is where we see what has been come to be known in the church as original sin. We see, too, the effects of sin. As Thomas shared last week, we are hoping in this series that we are not only looking at Genesis 3 as a history lesson, but that we will see ourselves, our lives, and our world in this scripture and how the effects of sin play out in our everyday lives. We can reflect on this, asking how do we live this out today, and we can repent we can change and move in a new direction. This is the journey that we are on together this Lenten season. Disordered Love, our sermon title, uh, in case you weren't here last week, that comes from, it's a very old term, reaching back 1,600 years to an African bishop who is called St. Augustine. He is the one who first coined this, this um, phrase, disorder love. Augustine defines sin as disordered love. Sin is when either we love the wrong things or we love the right things too much. So sin isn't rule-breaking as much as a form of disordered love. Now to help us to step into our scripture, I'm actually going to read not only verse 7, but, but the six verses prior to that. To help us to step into our scripture this morning, I'm going to invite us to play to a game together. Two truths and a lie. I expect some of you have played this before. If you have not played this before, basically someone shares two truths, one lie about themselves. You try to discern the lie. Often you place some half-truths into the lie to make it a little bit more difficult to discern which one is the lie. So we're going to play around. I'm going to actually ask you to vote at the end. Two truths and one lie about me. Hmm. I haven't used a lapel in a while. <laughs> Two truths and a lie about me. First, I stomped grapes in Napa during the harvest season last fall with my good friend Nancy. Second, as a kid in Florida, I played for a nationally competitive fast pitch softball team. Third, as a child, I dreamed of being an astronaut. And I even had an inflatable space shuttle on my desk in college. All right, how many peop people think the first one was the lie? Quite a few of you. How about number two, that the second one was a lie? Just as many. Finally, the third one. How many of you think the third one was a lie? Okay, that was actually pretty spread out between all three. No, I did have an inflatable space shuttle on my desk. <laughs> in college, and I happily stomped grapes last year. I played on a competitive, <laughs> played's a little generous. I sat the bench primarily <laughs> on a nationally competitive softball team as a child, but it was slow pitch instead of fast pitch. The serpent in Genesis 3 uses the same strategy. Blending some truth with a lie, making it more difficult to discern the truth. 
Listen for that as we now look at a pivotal part of God's relationship with humanity, the third chapter in Genesis and the tra tragic avalanche of sin that happened because of eating the fruit. Let's return to the six verses we, ha we heard last week and to add to the conversation, I'll offer verse seven. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may it all be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, would you open us up to the possibility that you are present with us now? loving us and wanting to speak into our very lives. We come before you with hopeful expectation this morning, praying this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the beginning of God's story, a human totally dependent upon God is placed in a garden with everything to enjoy, including a companion. They have the whole of Eden to enjoy. God is generous. He gives good and perfect gifts. They have nourishment, protection, freedom, love, and community. There was so very much that was permitted. They could eat of the tree of life. Only one thing was prohibited. There had only one restriction, one that wasn't all that restrictive as there was so much that was permitted. They were to leave just one tree alone on pain of death. It was a gracious reminder that humans are created to be in a dependent, obedient relation with the Father. At the end of chapter 2 in Genesis, delightful creation is finished. Sabbath is celebrated. These humans are now to live in God's world with God's creatures on God's terms. Things are going really great when all of the sudden a serpent appears. The New Testament identifies the serpent as Satan or the adversary. It doesn't give us a lot of information about the serpent, for ultimately the story is much more focused on the human response when humans are faced with choices that could seduce them away from God. The serpent raises a question about the amount of freedom given to humans. Now wait, let me see if I got this straight. Did God really say that you will die? 
God knows your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, but you will not die. The serpent attacks the woman's loyalty to the God who made her. He begins to chip away at the rock of God's goodness and love. The serpent wonders if God's limits are necessary and are they loving? In last week's sermon, Thomas noted noted with us that we have basically franchised the idea of living with no limits in our life. We love the idea of having no limits put upon us. Adam and Eve will get in trouble because they want to be like God and because they want no limits. The serpent presents possibilities. He is the master of half-truths and ambiguity. He undermines the authority of Yahweh, questioning why God would want to keep knowledge to himself. He uses the big lie that you can determine right and wrong for yourself. The serpent has Eve's attention. We all know what happens next. Eve eats of the fruit that was a delight to the eyes and gives some to Adam. Adam, while a silent partner, was with her equally Culpable, he eats the fruit, no questions asked, which brings us to verse 7. In the realization that they are naked. Adam and Eve had been completely at peace with God and with each other in the garden. Genesis 2.25 captures the delight of the garden. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think of my pseudo-niece Heather when she was a toddler. After bath time, she would happily run around the house with zero shame, clothed in the glory of God, fully alive and totally at home with who she was, with no need to hide from others. No word for sin occurs in chapter 3 of Genesis, but we quickly understand that what Adam and Eve did was wrong in God's eyes. The whole world is thrown off kilter by sin. And all loves scrambled. The first effects of sin that we see there in verse 7 is the effect that sin has on our relationship with each other. The effect that sin has on our vertical relationships. Friends, this is when shame invaded the world. We have been living with the instinct to hide ever since. Now, shame is not the same thing as guilt. I feel guilty because of what I did. I feel shame for who I am. In this airbrushed, critical, hyper-competitive world in which we live, it is so very easy to not feel good about ourselves and to forget the truth of our belovedness, the truth of our belovedness that we receive from God the Creator. In our shame, we hide ourselves. We are hiding from something all the time. We hide from one another in a multitude of ways. For example, we hide behind our humor. We can hide behind books. We hide behind awards and accomplishments, degrees and careers. We hide behind our fears and our prejudices. We hide behind devices. 
We hide our true selves in hoping to have the right friends. The story of Adam and Eve is a story of primal sin and distrusting God, of seeking to be like God, edging God out and refusing to accept limits. It is also the beginning of the story of disordered love. Love out of order is what the Bible calls idolatry. This is the essence of idolatry, making good things into ultimate things. Idolatry is when your heart takes one thing and makes it the center of your life, and when that one thing isn't God, you are engaging in something called idolatry. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give to you what only God can give. Presbyterian founder John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. As Tim Keller writes, it's the making of good things into ultimate things. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, you would hardly find life worth living. What complicates all of this is that almost without exception, these idols and loves are good things, God's greatest gifts. Gifts like friendship, family, beauty, security, freedom, talent, money, and work. Anything can be an idol, and everything has been an idol. Everything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. However, it's not necessarily about removing things from your life. If family is your idol, God does not want you to abandon your family. If career is your idol, God is not calling you to quit your job and to live on the streets. If food is your idol, God is not asking you to starve. Rather, it's about having both yourself and God right-sized and in their proper place, reordered along with all of the good things in your life. All of us have good things in our lives that we value that are out of proportion in value to their value in comparison with the value of God. According to Augustine's framework, the task is to reprioritize and to reorder our loves. One of the primary reasons we do this is because it benefits our relationships. It benefits our relationships with one another to have our loves in the right order. I had the gift of being on retreat with five others from Covenant this week. We joined people from two other churches. A church in Austin, a, a church in Houston. This is a part, you've heard a little bit about this. This is a part of the Texas church cohort, uh, church cohort that we are participating in through Fuller Seminary. We began this journey together last fall as we side by side try to discern, to figure out together what it means to be the church in the 21st century. The retreat began on Tuesday. I was not my best self upon arrival. 
I had not slept well the night before being out of the office. I have been so swamped lately being out of the office for three days did not seem like a really wise decision. I arrived to the retreat weary and frankly agitated as I was still processing some unwelcome news that I had received the the day prior. So this is who I was. This is who I brought to this retreat with all sorts of church leaders. And one of the very first things we did when we gathered is we were instructed to meet with our small group. Now, I am in a small group with three other guys, three pastors from other churches besides ours. These guys are not my best friends, but they are really great human beings. It's a safe place to be when I am in small group with them. Yet, I have to tell you, if I could have figured out a way to skip that small group time, I would have. Because I did not want to be vulnerable with these guys. I was reminded during that time of how hard it is to turn toward people in the community and to share your vulnerable self. By the grace of God, I was able to take off my mask and to share. I was the last one to share. I was having a conflict within myself the whole time as other people were sharing. The guys shared vulnerably too, and I have to say that we left that small group as truer spiritual friends because of our honesty with each other. Friends, we each contribute to culture shaping here at Covenant. I wonder what can each of us offer? What can each of us do to contribute to creating a culture here at Covenant that welcomes the honest and vulnerable sharing of the self? It's a really important part of our life together. So being in that small group was an important time, but what was even more important for me was the very next morning. For the first thing that we did is we had a communal reading of Luke 8, 22 through 25 before we were sent off to have two hours in solitude. Now you heard from Thomas last fall about the three hours in solitude. And he shared honestly about how that was a struggle for him and how I skipped off so happy to go enter into this solitude time. We are still arguing about whether or not I actually skipped. That was three hours. This was two hours. I was incredibly excited to enter into this time because I could feel that my loves were scrambled. So we hear this, this Luke 8, 22 through 25, and here, here, this is that wonderful story about Jesus being in the boat with his disciples. And they take off in the boat across the lake, and pretty soon Jesus falls asleep. And after Jesus falls asleep, the windstorm comes. The water is filling into the boat. The disciples freak out. They wake up Jesus. Jesus calms the storm. All is calm and all is well. And he looks at his disciples and says, where is your faith? So I sit on a picnic table and I listen to that story. I reflect upon that story. And as I sat with the story, I was reminded of Jesus' presence with me in the boat. One of the first things I noticed was the presence of the disciples in the boat. And I thought about the disciples who are in the boat with me. 
people who are such a part of my formation and my shaping, helping me in this work, encouraging me in the work of following Jesus every day. And I gave thanks to God for them. But the only one in the boat able to calm any storm is Jesus. The only one powerfully present in the boat of our lives able to calm storms raging within us and around us, the only one who can fix that is not the community, but the disciples. I mean, not the community, but Jesus powerfully present in the boat with us. As I sat with that story, I could feel my loves being reordered. Friends, while courageously turning toward one another in love and living more honestly with one another, our primary work as an alternative community called to live and love in a countercultural way is to nurture our own souls and to fall more in love with Jesus. It's spending time with the Lord in order to hear God's voice reminding us that our identity comes from God and God alone and that our identity is that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. If we do not know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, here is what is going to happen. We are going to expect someone in the community to make us to feel that way. They can't. If we don't understand that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, we are going to expect someone in the community to give to us perfect, unconditional love. It is impossible. Or we are going to expect someone in the community to be able to be ever-present and ever-powerful and to calm the storms of our lives. That isn't their role. This is how our loves get disordered. Friends, what is most important to you? If we sat here and shared that together, I expect there would be a common thread that would weave its way through our responses. Responses, I expect, such as faith, family, friends, freedom, health, employment. I wonder this good spring break week, could we carve out some time, all of us, to nurture our relationship with God? We routinely live in Genesis 3. We choose to kick God out of the garden. We kick God out of his supremacy in our lives. We don't want any restrictions placed upon us. Functionally, we act and become our own gods. Christ makes a way for us to be reunited. Lent is a season to tell the truth of who we are, to be truthful in our lives, and to do some honest work before God. This Lenten season, you are invited to explore in community with others how our loves are sometimes disordered. The key is not to make our loves smaller. It's to make God bigger and more central in our lives. We are invited this Lent to repent and to turn toward the one, the only one, who deserves first place in our lives.
Friends, let's pray for one another this Lent as we engage in this critical work together. Would you pray with me? Oh God, would you give us the grace to examine our lives, to forsake our sin, and to turn more fully towards you. God, we pray that you would shuffle and reprioritize our loves. Lord, we pray for you to take your rightful place on the throne of our lives. We ask that you will heal our shame and enable us to live authentic lives, more authentic lives, before you and with each other. God, give to us the courage and the wisdom that we need for the living of these days. This we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.